The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. All we can ever really own are our choices. Dr. Scott Stoll said that last July on this very program, and after the break, he will be back with more wisdom for our current time. I am Victoria Moran, the host of the Main Street Vegan program. I am so happy to be with you today and to introduce to you my first segment guest, Rich Hardy. Rich is the first undercover investigator we have ever had on the program. Doesn't that sound fascinating? He has been a professional environmental and animal protection activist for over 25 years, and Rich has led campaigns for some of Britain's most creative and successful nonprofit organizations, including Surfers Against Sewage and Veganuary, which inspired a quarter of a million people to try a vegan diet in 2019. But all the while that he's been doing his good work out in the world, he's been doing some other very good work for the past two decades, going undercover to document animal suffering for human gain. His images and testimony have fueled the work of over 20 international animal protection organizations, and he is the winner of the Animal Hero Award. Welcome, 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 Rich Hardy. Thanks, Victoria. Really lovely to to be joining you today. Well, what stories you have to tell. So you started out doing good, like a lot of us want to do good and try to do good. But then you ended up doing the kind that takes some real grit. What was that history? Yeah, so I was, uh, yeah, like a mainstream campaigner, lobbyist here in the UK, Uh, particularly sort of like working on campaigns to stop factory farming, so farm animal protection work, and spending a lot of time meeting and sort of lobbying politicians in London. And uh, I was always coming up against the sort of same brick brick walls, really. 
And that was, well, you know, show me the evidence. And unfortunately, sort of during the, the sort of mid 90s to, to late 90s, there really wasn't a great deal of sort of visual material you could show, you know, undercover investigations were, were in the infancy. So I was really reliant just sort of on scientific information and reports. So it was all quite quite heavy material and, and didn't really bring, you know, the real tragedies that animals are facing in factory farms and circuses and laboratories across the world um, to, to, to the forefront. So I, I did a U-turn on that and, uh, yeah, two decades on, I've, I've just sort of wrapping up now my investigative work. Well, it, it's an amazing, amazing life. So you have a book, Not As Nature Intended. Does that tell your investigative story or is that something different? Yeah, it's um, it's basically a snapshot of yeah two decades working undercover for animals. And because I knew I was kind of calling time on this work, uh, I wanted to make sure that, you know, Whilst a lot of the stories have already been out and, and used for exposés in national media across the world for, for different uh, to support different animal organisations' work, I wanted to make sure that you know there wasn't any stories that I hadn't told or hadn't surfaced before I before I finished. So the book was kind of reliving some of those moments and and also digging so much deeper behind the industries that we really don't know much about and most of my work was was really working alongside uh the the owners uh, the workers the industries and 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 learning as much as i could to to bring it to to, to public light well that's a really interesting point that you did spend 20 years working alongside these people that i think most of us in animal protection would call the adversaries the other side what was that like? Well, that that was perhaps the most sort of surreal experience I've, I've had. Actually, it's uh, yeah. I mean, they are they are your adversaries, and uh, you know, spending a lot of time working alongside them and and living alongside them and getting a real insight into you know the way they view animals, the way they treat animals, and and the way they also. You know, treat others, humans as well, was, um, yeah, really quite eye-opening. And my job was obviously to try and document uh, everything that I saw that was breaking the law for animals or you know, would potentially be a cruelty case or an opportunity to change legislation. But at the same time, you know, I was learning a lot about these people. And, you know, if it wasn't for the work, uh, you know, some of them, you know, you could form friendships with, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to explain, really. Well, I think many of us just in, in our own families and associations, we're around people who see animals very differently uh, from the way we do, but to actually be working there ha has got to be so, so difficult. What did you do to just protect your nervous system? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think at the start I was probably quite naive and that wasn't really something I thought too much of at the time. But yeah, definitely as the sort of ways that I investigated evolved. Um, so, you know, it was it was quite using quite complex cover stories and using sort of investigative journalist techniques to 
to really get up close and personal with these industries. Uh, I, I then had to learn to be to, to, to protect myself a, a, a lot better. And also I had support from the outside. You know, I'd have a sort of a handler who I would be able to to lean on when I needed. But yeah, during the during the actual work and assignments themselves, when you're wearing hidden cameras, for example, you're you're very much on your own. So you gotta keep your wits about you, I guess. I can imagine. Well, tell us a story, <laughs> maybe two. Tell us one of these investigative stories. Okay, well, I'll, I'll focus on the U.S. as that's an area that I have worked in uh, quite substantially over the past 10 years, I would say. And there's a couple of areas of work that I've really focused on. One is uh, examining the chicken industry. Um, there's a lot of broiler chickens being grown in the U.S., uh, probably more than anywhere else right now, about $9 billion. Uh, produced uh, annually just in, 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 in certain parts of the country. So it's a big, big producer and obviously U.S. eat a lot of chicken. But I had to yeah, find ways into to living alongside chicken farmers and you know, document the, the short lives of these chickens. I mean, I think few people probably realize that, you know, a chicken goes from, from egg to to play in, in just, you know, 40 odd days. It's a very short life and it's a very hard life and involves you know, a great deal of suffering. So, yeah, I would, I would um, yeah, find ways in to, to, to people that run chicken farmers, uh, contract growers, so working for big chicken companies uh, across the U.S. And, yeah, these are people that were yeah, probably the most normal people I've met. Um, a lot of them are doing it just to sort of earn a little bit extra on the side. Uh, it might not just be their own job, um, but, you know, they're tied into very long contracts for, you know, sort of five, ten years sometimes. And, you know, actually, you know, the way that they view the animals are, are, are different from, from farm to farm. Some see them just as a product. Others, you know, take some sort of pleasure in, in looking after them, but don't really realise the sort of sentiency that comes with the animals. They're not products. They have, you know, feelings and experience pain and suffering, just like all animals. So it was, um, yeah, it was a business, not a, definitely not a sanctuary. Um, so that was one area of work I've done. And the other area of work was probably the most challenging assignments. I spent two winters working undercover with fur trappers. Oof. And it's, for someone in Europe, it was quite unusual to, to, to know that fur trapping lives on um, in the same way that it did, you know, 500 years ago when, you know, uh, the French and the, the British were in the U.S. trading furs with, you know, the Native American Indians and the techniques that they were catching and trapping these animals have pretty much been passed down through the generations and family to family and so haven't really evolved that much yet. Obviously, we're, we're, we're not um, requiring wearing fur to, to keep ourselves warm anymore. This is purely, you know, for fashion, for the fashion industry. And um, that, was, that was a really, really tough project, working out in the field, in the woods, in the forests. And, and you know, I did see, you know, a lot of awful things there um, during those two winters. So, yeah, unfortunately, um, the... the Cruelty 
doesn't know any boundaries. There's no borders. You know, I experience the same problems with factory farms in the US as I do in Europe. The same issues with, you know, animals and entertainment in in Canada as you would do in you know in in, in India. It's uh it's the systems that we've been given that are really causing so many of the problems. So it's so important to try and you know beat those systems back and win new recognition for animals and. I think this type of work helps helps do that in, in, in some way alongside existing campaigning techniques. Yes. Oh, it absolutely does. It's so powerful. In all of these years of doing this work, did anybody working in those industries ever express any sort of misgiving? Yes, uh, particularly in the last few years, I've noticed that a lot of factory farmers uh, are giving up. I spent a lot of time looking at the factory farming of rabbits for meat in Europe, in particular countries like Italy, um, France. And it's quite interesting that these are family-run businesses, although, you know, huge factory farms, multiple sheds, tens of thousands of animals in cages. A lot of them are beginning to see the writing on the wall. And... Certainly, several I know have walked away from that. And more importantly, I think, is their, their family, their children, who perhaps might once have taken on the farm once their parents are retired, are saying, actually, we, we just don't want a part of this. So, yeah, definitely there's a lot to be hopeful for. And I think, you know, now that I'm, I'm sort of looking ahead and not back, I see so much, you know, positivity for, for, for our movement and, and better lives for animals. So, Ah, the times ahead, hopefully. Yeah, well, tell us some of that. Well, what do you see based on what you've done for the past 20 years? What's your vision for the next 20? Well, I think we're definitely on a you know trajectory for, for getting plant-based foods into all kinds of you know, school programs, even into like parliaments, you know, on the menu and in, in the Houses of Parliament, for example, you know, you can find vegan options now. So what I've noticed about uh, just the word vegan is that I hear it just dropped on the street in everyday conversation so much more in the last couple of years than, than, I, than I did, you know, previously. And I think it's part of an everyday national conversation, international conversation. It has not just a sort of a place in society, but it also has like credibility. And I think, you know, just like health, uh, obviously like the world's scientists are encouraging us to eat more vegan foods because of the impact, you know, we're having on our climate. So, you know, you definitely have those knock-on effects to the environment movements, climate change movements, health movements. I, I, I became vegan because of animals, but, you know, it's certainly not that, just that anymore. People are interested in veganism and plant-based living for, for many more reasons that, you know, they're going to support themselves and make our planet a better place to live. Now, you went vegan as a child. I, I know that's happening a lot now, but I don't think it happened all that much uh, 33 years ago. So yeah. what was going on with you? Yeah, so I, I, I went vegan. I was vegetarian for a little bit first, but I went vegan. I was actually on course to become a professional football player, soccer player here in the UK. And I was training, training 
yeah, every week, several times a week for the rest of the, the lads. And, uh, you know, I decided during that time to go vegan. There were a few things that clicked into place for me. Um, but it was a really hard place, like professional athletics at that point to be a vegan. And as a result, you know, I kind of um, left that and, and sort of moved into activism. But I actually was brought up in a in a family that had, um, yeah, we're all vegetarian. Um, but we all made our own choices. My sister made her own choices. My parents made their own sort of choices. And we became a vegan family. And that probably made things a lot, a lot easier, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I raised my daughter vegan, and she's okay. grown up. She's still vegan. Her husband was vegetarian for several years. Now he's vegan. Oh, and great. sometimes I think, you know, if you just are there being an example and kind of leave people to their own devices, they, they do discover this. So the book, Everybody Is Not As Nature Intended, Rich's website is notasnatureintended.com, and you can find him also on Facebook and Instagram, Not As Nature Intended. So when you were doing this um, investigative work, Rich, you went to 30 countries. Tell us about a country or two that we probably don't know very much about at all in terms of what they're doing with animals. Okay. Well... Some of the assignments I've done have taken me to the Middle East and uh, for food, for food-based assignments. So, what perhaps many people aren't aware of is that uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of animals are sent every year from Australia to the Middle East for meat, and they're sent on big boats, huge livestock tankers that you know spend several weeks at sea um, often you know atrocious weather conditions and it's all for slaughter as soon as they arrive so we're talking about sheep and cattle and when they enter the gulf um, they get hit by this like humidity that they have never experienced before and many of them die in the last few days of that journey and yeah sort of thrown overboard for the, for the sharks and it's a staggering amount of animals each year. Um, the Australian nation is, you know, really up in arms about it, but it's, you know, really heavily supported by the government. And what I thought was interesting in the last few years is that there's more vegan communities that are springing up in the Middle East, uh, places like uh, Saudi and Jordan and uh, uh, Amman, places like that. I've got, you know, small vegan communities starting up and are aware of those kind of shipments and, and not proud that their countries play a part in these terrible journeys. But, you know, change is happening on the ground. So that, that's, that's one great thing. And then I've also worked um, in the Arctic, in Arctic Scandinavia, the very, very north of Sweden and Finland. And one of the things that that area is known for is, is Christmas and reindeers. And, you know, many people visit you know, to go and see sort of Lapland and the sort of Santa theme parks that they have up there in that region. And, you know, everyone gets so much enjoyment from reindeers, you know, the jingly music that accompanies their, you know, their, their sleigh rides that you see on the TV. But they also have a huge uh, meat industry with reindeers where um, after being herded and corralled down from the mountains, 
packed onto big juggernaut trucks and then sent into really big commercial slaughterhouses, the same sort of slaughterhouses that um, big farm animals like cattle go into. And yeah, so few people know about that trade, but yeah, the meat's exported right across uh, Europe and fancy restaurants. And um, that was a bit of an eye-opener because, you know, there's so many things that we least expect to be, you know, um, traded commercially in this way. And I think range is probably one of those. Did you ever find a place or do you know of a place where people or large groups of people are exceedingly kind to even one non-human species. It seems like wherever you look in the world, you find all kinds of cruelty and oppression. Did you find the other? I mean, I have seen acts of kindness and, you know, certainly whilst doing this this job, I've tried whenever possible, you know, to, to extend that sort of hand of compassion when I, when I can, when the opportunity arises. See, it's not that easy when you're when you're working alongside um, people that you know are, are causing suffering to animals. But but yeah, I mean, it's 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 few and far between. But I think we've all got it in us. We just have to sort of dig down a little bit and and and, and put it to the surface. And I think um, you know, just you know, just the sort of you know YouTube videos and yeah, you, know, you do see all those great moments where you know people that you don't expect to be um, helping animals find themselves in positions where they have to or want to. And that's really nice to see. And we've all got it in us. It's just we have to break down the, the walls that have been put up that says, you know, factory farming is a good thing, slaughterhouses is a good thing. We just have to be a little bit braver and bolder and want to know a little bit more about these secret, secret industries that, you know, really keep everything behind closed doors. Yes. Now, you've said that we all have it in us, the kindness, and I completely agree with you. But I don't think we all have in us what you have in you to be able to do this particular kind of work. So if somebody is listening out there who has always thought, I wonder if I could do that, what does that person need <laughs> to be able to do that? Oh, yeah, most definitely, I think. There's a lot of activists out, out, out in the world now that you know, want to make a difference and trying to find a way to, to help animals, whether it's you know, through research or campaigning or a sort of creativity and art. Yeah, these are all really you know, fantastic areas to explore and develop and, and choose as a, as a profession. You know. But if you want to go undercover for animals, I think there's a few things I would recommend. One is don't do it alone and team up with, you know, a non-profit organization that are specialists in using this uh, type of activism to support their campaigning. So um, I guess in the States, we're thinking, you know, particularly Mercy for Animals, Animal Quality, they've all got very established and successful and great investigation units. So uh, check out those opportunities. And also, I would say, you know, you, you have to be really patient with this profession, really calm. Um, you have to be able to distance yourself from the suffering at times that you would normally want to be taking action because your role is very much to document 
and think about it in terms of like, you know, if you're able to document something, you're able to bring it to the attention of you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions possibly. Whereas if you try and take action, in that moment, you're not able to bring it to anyone at all. So that's the sort of outlook I would, I would suggest that you'd be wanting to, to have. And don't do it forever. I would say do it for, for the time that feels right. Um, I would say I did it for too long and, and perhaps paid a little bit for that. How so, Rich? I think it really caught up with me in the last few years. Um, like I said, at first, I was I wasn't I was just doing it because there was a need. Um, there wasn't a great deal of undercover investigative work around, and it was just a need. So it was just something that I felt just had to be done. But as time went on, and you know, I, I had to create these cover stories, and and you know, it, it's kind of complex, and it and it involves. Um, you know, not being able to tell truths when you want to. I think that catches up with you a little bit. And obviously, you know, there's a whole catalogue of uh, scenes and uh, that I, I remember recording that um, come to me, you know, most days when I least expect them and, and, and you know, won't, won't easily be displaced. But, you know, I look, I look forward um, and I think the world's looking forward uh, especially where where we are right now with the COVID nineteen outbreak, uh, outbreak, we're we're, we're all going to have to come out of this with a different mindset. Look at the source, you know, where this is coming from and how it's evolving, and 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 reshape that. And if we do that, then we'll help ourselves and and we'll help animals as well. Oh, that's for certain. So you were rewarded for at least some degree of all of this wonderful effort that you've made for so long in September of 2019 with the Daily Mirror Award Special Recognition Animal Hero Award. And we will post uh, the YouTube link on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net so everybody can see you uh, receiving that award. In our last minute, what's up for you? What's coming now and in the next 20 years? Well, yeah, um, next minute. Um, I think, uh, yeah, just looking ahead, I've got a little micro sanctuary here in Cornwall in the UK that I share with my partner, uh, Prue, and we have between 15 and 20 rescue animals, dogs, cats, ducks, chickens. They've come from shelters and factory farms and slaughterhouses and yeah, we're just trying to provide them with, you know, a good full life that they didn't have uh, in the cages and, and crates that they, they came from. So that's really nice, spending time with animals living in ways that animals should. So that's really lovely. And, that is beautiful. Uh, and yeah, that's so our minute. <laughs> yeah, so that's all good. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Rich Hardy, everybody, read his book not as nature intended and stay with us for dr scott stoll right after these messages You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. And welcome back from me, too. It's wonderful to have you sharing this hour with us. For those of you who are new to the Main Street Vegan radio show and podcast, we are live every Wednesday afternoon and have been since 2012. So we've got lots of amazing archives that you can check out. And I hang out at MainStreetVegan.net, and you can find out what else is going on over there. Check out our blog for the week, which happens to be about how to talk with other people, people who eat differently, people who see the world differently. But, you know, sometimes we love those people anyway, and it's good to have some communication tips. And that's what this week's blog at MainStreetVegan.net is all about. And I've already told you who is coming up right now. I'm so happy to be welcoming back someone that I admire a great deal, Scott Stoll, MD. He is the co-founder and chairman of the board of the Plantrician Project. He's also an Olympian. He was on the 1994 Olympic bobsled team, and he is currently featured in James Cameron's powerful film, the Game Changers. Dr. Stoll and his family live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I really wanted to go last Christmas, so I'm putting it on the calendar for this year. Welcome, Dr. Scott Stoll. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. It's just wonderful to be back with you, and I, I appreciate this opportunity to um, have a conversation with you today. And when you come to Bethlehem, you have to come and have dinner with us next year. Oh, I would absolutely love that. I've been there in the summertime, but when I was there, everybody told me, well, you have to come at Christmas because we do Christmas like nobody else. That's right. The Christmas uh, city and it is beautiful. Yeah, that'll be wonderful. And and by then, hopefully, we'll be traveling a little bit and doing things that are, are somewhat normal. But right now, as I am speaking to you in late April of, of 2020, uh, normal is something uh, we haven't done much with lately. So as a physician, as a plant-based physician, uh, what what's going on? <laughs> Translate, please. Yes, boy, this has really uh, impacted all of us in so many amazing ways. And I was just uh, talking with my wife about how quickly things can change as we all sat on New Year's Eve and we're talking about what 2020 held. None of us anticipated that it would hold COVID-19, you know, words that we had never heard before, but now have become part of our everyday vernacular. And, uh, you know, first, for all of those that are listening that have been impacted in, in, in many ways, you know, not just the virus and the illness, but the financial impact and the uncertainty and fear, I just want to extend uh, blessings and prayers from my family to you all. And um, it's my hope that as we have this conversation today that a glimmer of hope is ignited in all of your hearts. So, and, you know, I think uh, your opening question would take a long time, but, I, you know, I think uh, it's just what I've seen is a couple of things, and I will launch into more of a conversation around it, but I have seen we have two pandemics. One is the pandemic of the virus which um, has been, you know, very virulent. It's infected lots of people very quickly. And we have a, a pandemic of fear uh, based around the uncertainty of what this virus would bring. And part of that is just that we didn't understand how this virus was going to interact with the population 
and how many people would get sick. And there were estimates about, you know, millions of people dying. And I think that that created so much fear um, that there's been kind of this reactionary uh, fear-based approach um, to this virus as well that has affected everybody in the world at this point in time. Well, it certainly affected me. I'm here in New York City, and I had my 70th birthday just as the thing was starting. It's like, gee, thanks a lot. I get used to a new decade and being all of a sudden in the high-risk group. And I have to say, walking my dog was never frightening before. And and now, you know, it's it's a deal. So um, wh- what do we do? You, you've called this a chronic lifestyle disease or that chronic lifestyle disease is related now to, to how the virus affects people. So ferret that out for us. Yeah, it was so interesting as we have uncovered more data around coronavirus and the impact it's had on populations. You know, two new studies that were just published in the month of April coming out of New York City have shown that nearly 90% of the people that had severe cases requiring hospitalization or that resulted in death uh, were, number one, obese, uh, or two, had other chronic conditions like high blood pressure, heart disease, um, or other chronic illnesses like uh, chronic obstructive lung disease or a pulmonary disease. And we saw similar numbers coming out of Louisiana where it's 97% of those that are hospitalized uh, with severe cases or dying uh, have obesity and one of those chronic diseases. And we know that uh, from the CDC, they've estimated that 75% of the cost of our health care, or $2.2 trillion a year in America today, is related to the care of chronic lifestyle diseases. And so our hospitals are first being overrun with chronic lifestyle-related diseases that are directly related to what we eat every day, how we move our bodies, what we use in our fingers, what kind of habits, how we sleep, and how we handle stress. We have a, an epi, global epidemic of lifestyle diseases, and then we add on top of that this pandemic of infectious disease with COVID. And now we have you know, um, hospitals that are at maximum capacity in many parts of the country, not all over the, uh, the country or the world. And so I, I think that the one takeaway from this is the critical importance for every country in the world to address the epidemic of lifestyle-related diseases, not only for the prevention of future pandemics like coronavirus and its impact on people, but also for the health of our healthcare system long-term. Do you think that the world is ready for us? And I say this based not on watching television all day and knowing who has been where, But in my own experience, other than seeing Dr. Katz on the Bill Maher show, I'm not seeing you and Dr. Ornish and Dr. Clapper and Dr. Furman. Why not? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, to answer your question, I, I don't think the world was ready for us. But I think something like this pandemic certainly makes them more Uh, aware of these chronic lifestyle conditions. And I think there's going to be a greater receptivity to the message that we're all sharing, uh, you and I and everyone else, that, you know, the food that we eat is perhaps the most, one of the most important pillars of health 
for our bodies, for our families, for our environment, for animals, and for the world. And we have to get that piece right. Um, it's of critical importance. And I think that this pandemic, and I, I really hope the message comes out, uh, this pandemic highlights that fact that the stuff that we put on our plate three times a day is one of the most important decisions that we all make uh, as a, a global culture. Absolutely. And right now, we're, we're looking at the past couple of days, the um, response to the large number of COVID-19 cases among slaughterhouse workers, um, whether they're going to stay away from work, whether they have to go back to work. And, and I think the key question for me, as someone who has not had a piece of meat in decades, <laughs> the, the idea that being without meat or having the meat in short supply is some kind of crisis. To me, this this is a, a mental issue before we get to the political and practical issues. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I read the same articles and I, you know, you and I know um, that protein doesn't just come from meat. It comes from everything that we eat, including fruit has small amounts of protein. And so I, I read that and I realize that there's this incredible uh, delusion in our culture and world that we have to have meat to be healthy. And we have to, get, we have to eat meat to get protein because protein is of prime importance. And the word protein actually means prime importance. And, um, you know, when it was first discovered, it was given that name, protein, and um, the the perception that was then disseminated into the culture was that, you know, protein is what makes us strong, and then they juxtaposed it against pictures of um, people in third world countries that have, uh, you know, uh, food deficiencies and protein deficiencies, like kwashiorkor, and they, you know, show that this is what happens when you don't eat protein. And so I think that woven throughout our culture is this idea that I have to eat meat to keep my body strong. And if I don't eat meat, I'm not going to get enough protein. I'll get sick and weak. And so that's playing against, um, against us that are pro promoting protein comes from plants. And the original source of protein is plants. You know, the cow got its protein by eating grass. The elephant got its protein by eating leaves and grass. Gorillas get their protein by eating plants. And so protein comes from plants. In fact, you probably know this, but Grass is 40% protein, which is quite remarkable. And so, you know, the message I would love to get out there is that you can get protein from plants, and not only protein, but you get protein that comes packed with phytochemicals and fiber that are going to buttress your immune system and heal your microbiome so that your immune system is strong enough to fight off, of, fight off infections like coronavirus. And so it's protein plus nutrients that strengthen your immune system. And yes, yeah, so you and I have a lot of work to do, Victoria. We have we do indeed. Lots, <laughs> it's lots a good thing work, we're energetic. Lots of misconceptions to, to undo. Yes. And you can grow those foods in a garden or an orchard. You know, people take their children out. Well, let's go apple picking this weekend. Nobody ever says, let's go to a slaughterhouse. So I just want to also um, send good healing prayers and wishes to to people who, who do work in slaughter plants. Nobody chooses that. Nobody is a little child in school saying, I want to kill animals for a living when I grow up. So, <sighs> right. 
<laughs> we need a lot of love to go around. So yeah. um, what would you tell people to do to protect themselves uh, during a period like this from a diet and lifestyle perspective? Yes. Yeah, so the most important things that all of us can do um, are to just bring our lifestyle uh, underneath that healthy umbrella of the pillars of lifestyle medicine. And the first most important pillar is food. You know, by choosing plant-based foods, whole plant-based foods, we have the greatest opportunity to optimize our body and its systems. Uh, when we're choosing, you know, a delicious meal of kale and beans and onions and garlic and herbs and spices, it is naturally reducing inflammation in our body. In fact, within several hours, it's turning, turning off the key inflammatory switches in our body, so it's down-regulating inflammation, which is really important when we consider coronavirus because they're finding that um, one of the steps that leads to more severe cases and hospitalizations is what's called a cytokine storm or this storm of inflammatory molecules in the body. So when we're eating these beautiful plant-based foods, it's turning off these key inflammatory switches and giving your body a greater ability to um, face an infection without an overreaction of inflammation. So also these foods, beans, lentils, uh, have uh, resistant starches that naturally feed the microbiome. We know that the 50 to 100 trillion bacteria that live in our gut are responsible for 75% of the health of our immune system. And so by helping to restore that natural strength of the gut bacteria, we increase and boost our immune system's ability to fight off an infection and to minimize the severity of an infection that we might face, like coronavirus. Also, by adding things like mushrooms to our diet, mushrooms boost the immune system and help our body to fight infections, and they're very good at strengthening the, uh, the microbiome. And then finally, adding in spices and herbs to our diet. You know, in America, we're so used to just spicing our food with salt and pepper, but we learn from other countries like India where they use this abundant array of vibrantly colored, beautiful uh, spices that are delicious. They um, have more nutrients um, than even the food that we eat. And so the, the antioxidant capacity, the anti-inflammatory ability of those spices that we would add on to our food, multiply the effect of the food that we're eating and really enhance our immune system. So that food piece is probably the first most critical piece. And I'll just add this um, as well, just on the, on the negative side, the reason that we take things out of our diet like sugar, sugar has been shown to suppress our immune system, and just a couple tablespoons of sugar will suppress the immune system for up to four hours. And specifically, it suppresses the uh, part of the immune system that fights infections, the natural killer cells. And so... Even on a whole food plant-based diet or a vegan diet, it's important to make sure that we avoid sugar because we are impacting negatively our immune system. And for those that are um, eating meat, we know that within uh, just a few hours and even over a 24-hour period of time of consistently eating animal products, it begins to shape the microbiome into a, a population of bacteria that produce more inflammation and begin to weaken the immune system. And so that's why we need to pivot away from animals and pivot into whole-based plants 
um, as a primary source for our nutrition and our protein and our macronutrients. Once you get it, you get it. When you were first talking, you said that delicious meal of kale and beans and onions. I know there was a time in my life when somebody would have said that and I would have thought, eh, no, <laughs> not delicious. But now I'm right there with you. And I also love what you said about the spices and the herbs, because that was one of the later things that I learned. I think we, we sometimes pick up things as we go along. When I was early, early into this, I didn't eat really dark leafy greens. I didn't know what to do with them. But once I discovered them, my life changed. And then even more recently, it, it was that I used to hold on to spices from Christmas to Christmas. You know, what are you going to do with nutmeg and mace and all that stuff in July? And now, my goodness, I run out of spices constantly because I've found all these great ways to use them. Thanks to people like you and Dr. Greger, who have uh, told me how fabulous they are. So everybody, Dr. Scott Stoll, Plantrition Project. Dot O-R-G. So I know that the Plantrition Project has a new resource to connect people with plant-based physicians. How do they do that? Yeah, so one of the uh, real deficiencies that we um, have seen is that there are lots of people looking for doctors, um, like myself, Dr. Greger, Dr. Clapper, Dr. Furman, and others that practice lifestyle medicine and use whole plant foods as a foundation for optimizing health and preventing and reversing disease. And so um, we created a resource called the plantbaseddocs.com website, which is a geodirectory of healthcare providers. So not just doctors, but also uh, some nurses, health coaches, dietitians, um, certified nurse practitioners from around the world uh, that utilize food is medicine from a whole food plant-based nutrition uh, standpoint. And so it's an opportunity for people looking for a doctor, either locally or by telehealth now, to connect and to give them guidance on how to transition to a whole food plant-based diet. And the reason it's important for people that have high blood pressure, hypertension, uh, type 2 diabetes, other conditions with our medications, where the body can react pretty quickly to a diet they may need to make adjustments in their medications, you know, even within a week's time. That's how, that's how quickly and how powerfully diet can impact your health, that even in just a week of eating this healthy food, your body can respond and you may need to decrease medications and even discontinue them in a couple of weeks' time. I just love that, that, you know, somebody can make wrong choices, and they, oftentimes we just don't know we're making wrong choices, but we're eating what everybody else eats for decades, and it injures our body. But the body rebounds so quickly when we give it the right nutrition. And so, you know, if you have type 2 diabetes, if you have uh, even type 1 diabetes or high blood pressure, and you're transitioning over to a whole food plant-based diet, it's really important to be under the supervision of a physician that can titrate those medications off, follow lab work, and monitor you. And so that's why we created this plant-based docs website to connect people that needed to get healthy and wanted to do it utilizing food as medicine, lifestyle medicine, with healthcare practitioners in their region of the world that can come alongside of them. And so um, it's plantbaseddocs.com, and we are actually just launching next week our artificially intelligent driven platform that will really assist people in going through that process of, um, of receiving the, the best medical care, including telehealth services now, 
uh, which have become such a big part of the practice of healthcare since COVID-19. Um, yes. The COVID-19 pandem pandemic, yes. And what would you do if you were contacted by our very uh, articulate and, and truly charming Surgeon General, who has said that he has many of these conditions that, that we're talking about, hypertension, uh, asthma, some of these things. How would you speak to another physician, but who just hasn't seen the light on this yet? Yes, you know, I... I love to have these conversations. It's one of my favorite things. I, I look forward to opportunities to go to hospitals and to speak with colleagues that have never heard this message. Uh, if the Surgeon General would call me and I would welcome that phone call, I would clear my schedule and I would simply say to him, let's just sit down and go through the research together because the research is convincing. Um, and I would share with him research from beginning to end, looking at all the disease processes uh, case reports, clinical trials, randomized controlled trials, and let the research speak for itself. I would love for him to interview some of the, you know, now tens of thousands of people around the world that have had their lives transformed uh, through a whole food plant-based diet and to hear the stories not only of disease reversal, discontinuation of medications and feeling better, but to hear how their whole lives have changed, relationships have improved, New, um, new work opportunities, pursuing their dreams and goals, depression resolved, you know, all of those less um, easily measured but probably more important uh, outcomes of a lifestyle transformation. And I would just love for him to see the data and to hear the stories, and I hope that that would transform him. And then I would challenge him to, uh, you know, spend one week, on a whole food plant-based diet, and I would coach him through that and allow him to experience the difference. Because even in a week's time, you and I both know, Victoria, that somebody will feel so much better after making that lifestyle trans a transition in just a week that it's hard to deny the effects of food on our health. Well, amen to that. I hope it happens. I was actually uh, awakened to the situation with him by uh, Dr. Deborah Shapiro, who's uh, been a guest on this program. She's a member of, of your organization. And she was just like, how do we reach him? How do we get to him? Because, uh, yeah, that'd be great. So finally, just a golly, we're down to four minutes. What do we, and I mean, we as a human society, but also your medical profession. What do we learn from COVID-19? What can we learn from it? And then on a practical level, what do you really think we'll learn from it? Yeah, wow, that's, that's really, those are two good questions juxtaposed uh, against each other. You know, um, what I hope that we learn is that the choices uh, about our food have perhaps the greatest impact on our world today and the world in the future. Um, we see the impact from coronavirus with, you know, the zoonotic diseases that come from the wet markets and the industrialized animal agriculture where these um, viruses are given the opportunity to mutate and to spread and to jump into, to make that leap into another species. And so it would be my hope that people would recognize that, that is, that's the, one of the greatest threats to our future population 
and that we would begin looking for alternatives to animals for food. Um, I think we're beginning to see a little bit of that, that glimmer of hope in, you know, products like Beyond Meat where the stock is stored um, and other plant-based meat alternatives that are entering the market that, you know, there's an early recognition that that's important. Um, number two, I hope that people recognize the importance of being healthy, that when you've created a reserve of health and you enter into a crisis, you can draw on your reserves and overcome many of these challenges that uh, people are not able to overcome when they don't have um, extra reserve of health. And that's, you know, being free of these chronic lifestyle diseases. And so I'm hopeful that that message gets out there, and I'm going to do everything that I can to champion that. Um, and I also, you know, through crisis, oftentimes there's clarity, and so I'm really sincerely hoping that that people will recognize what's most important in life, and that is, you know, the love that we have for each other and healing relationships, the importance of living compassionately, caring for vulnerable, vulnerable members of the global population, both people and the animals that are, are being um, abused in these certified animal feeding operations and industrial animal, animal agriculture. And the important for us, importance for us to be stewards of everything that's under our care, including the land and the soil and the animals and the people that, we're all, um, that we've all been given charge of, of caring for and stewarding into the next generation. And so I hope that's what comes out of this. Um, what we will learn, I'm not sure. Uh, but I do know that there is a segment of the population that is getting this message, and so I'm hoping that that next group will join us in our quest to continue to uh, restore health and life to the population of the world. That's so beautifully put. Let's pray that that absolutely happens. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Stoll, The Plantrition Project. Everybody, check out my compassionate eating course through Spiritual Explorers from Unity. It's free through tomorrow through April 30th. So uh, learn about compassionate eating. Have a whole new life. God bless everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.